Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners that we do have two event series that they can go and attend and learn more about the topics covered in this podcast. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at strataconf.com. The second one is the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at the AIconf.com. In this episode of The Data Show, I speak with Peter Bayless, founder and CEO of Sisu, a startup that uses machine learning for operational analytics. Peter is also an assistant professor of computer science at Stanford University, where he conducts research into data-intensive systems, and where he is co-founder of the Dawn Lab. We had a great conversation spanning many topics, including his personal blog, which I think contains some of the best explainers on emerging topics in data management and distributed systems. So this is a blog he started when he was still a graduate student at UC Berkeley's AMP Lab. We all, of course, talked about the role of machine learning in operational analytics and business intelligence. And Peter has been involved in two very well-known machine learning benchmarks, Don Bench and MLPerf. So we talked about uh, benchmarks for machine learning, and I took the occasion to pick his brain as far as uh, trends in data management, distributed systems, as well as tools for machine learning, including machine learning development, governance, and operations. A reminder to all of our listeners, next week, October 14th to the 17th, is the second O'Reilly Artificial Intelligence Conference in London in the UK. We have another outstanding program for you. So I hope to see you all next week in London. And I also want to use this occasion to announce that the call for proposals for the Artificial Intelligence Conference in London 2020 will open next week as well. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Peter Bayless, Assistant Professor at Stanford and founder and CEO of Sisu. Welcome to the Data Show. Thanks for having me. Super excited to, to be on the show with you today. So first off, I've known you since you were a grad student at Berkeley Amp Lab working on distributed systems. And I think actually for a while, even though you were a grad student, you had this blog that where you wrote about distributed systems. I actually just looked at it before uh, we started talking here in the last entries in 2016. But for a while, that blog was read by industry people, even though you were a grad student writing about what you were doing as far as research. And I believe that because of that blog, you ended up, didn't you end up interfacing with a bunch of this NoSQL companies? I, I mean, I saw your name at some of their events and conferences and yeah, yeah, totally. I feel like so I was in grad school from like 2011 to 2015. And, and it was this really fun time where especially given the scale that was that was that a lot of these web services were hitting, people were basically going back to the drawing board on their data serving systems. And, you know, this is coming off of like Mike Stonemaker and David DeWitt writing this basically um, flame piece against the Hadoop community. And the general sentiment for like most of academia was that or at least some of the leaders in academia were that most of the industry was just going off the deep end and reinventing the wheel. And it was kind of fun being a grad student at Cal basically across the bay from everything that was happening and, and actually talk to people and be like, actually, yeah, you know, there's no transactions or SQL support or anything in these databases, but there's something kind of interesting going on around how do you build a database that literally never goes down as long as one of the nodes is up. And um, I don't know, I just had a lot of fun working this intersection of, of like kind of crazy new NoSQL databases and taking a bunch of distributed systems theory and saying, okay, what, which of the stuff holds up? 
can we do things like transactions? Even, you know, we have to keep make sure that every node can respond to every request. And it was just like a really, I don't know, I kind of set the stage for how I do research. Moving out to the Bay Area in 2011, hanging out with a bunch of cool industry practitioners and then figuring out what's like the thing everyone's trying to do and what are the limits of, of, of what's possible. So we were really fortunate to hang out with a bunch so of guys. So your blog was basically mostly about your research, but they also became like explainers, right? Yeah, I mean, to people like what's consistency, what's acid, what's happier. Yeah, I mean, like some of these posts, we would, I would like post well, my philosophy. I got a lot of flack from this actually, um, like back channel from other people in academics. They're like, why are you spending time blogging? Should be writing papers. And I was like, I spend like 200 hours on every paper. It's like a blog post is like half an hour, probably more like like two hours. Um, but uh, like, why wouldn't I do that? And and some of the stuff like that we blogged about. I think it was kind of news to some of the database people as well. Like, you know, there's this blog post where we talked about like, when are ACID transactions actually ACID? Like, when do databases actually give you serializability? And we had this giant table by looking at everyone's docs, like documentation, and be like, who's actually giving you ACID transactions or not? And like, it was a big kind of thing or among some circles uh, to be like, oh, wow, no one actually, like all these database vendors who are saying, oh, NoSQL sucks, they don't have transactions. They don't actually do transactions right anyway. And it's kind of funny because we wrote the blog post before we wrote the paper. And then we just like took the blog post table and like put it in the paper. And then instead of having hyperlinks to all these documentation, you know, we basically just um, made citations. I remember that post, actually the comments were also interesting in that post, right? Which one? Uh, That post that you just mentioned about acid and serialized visit. Ability, uh, the comment thread. It was a, it had a long comment thread, I think. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was good. I mean, people basically. Yeah, it was like twenty six. I'm just like let's pull it. I was like twenty six comments. Yeah, people are pretty. Um, I mean, like. But they were they were me. substantial comments. Not not. Uh, this is great. You know, they were like debating you, right? From what I remember. Totally. I mean, I think people are like like transactions are about correctness, and there's many interpretations of correctness, and people are like, well, what exactly does this do? And there's actually some awesome fallen work. Like this guy Martin Kleppman, who at the time was in oh, yeah. academia, and then, yeah, like, yeah, he yeah. did this fallen work and built like a testing suite called Hermitage that like implemented a bunch of tests. Like all these models were known. It's not like we were like coming up with these for the first time, but I don't think anyone actually looked at these real databases and said, like, you know, what do they provide? And then later we had stuff like, do application programmers on GitHub actually use transactions or not? <laughs> you know, like uh, no one had asked that question, which is kind of funny because I, I kind of think it's it's this fun intersection where, you know, Ivory Tower says like, look, transactions are the way to go. This is the way we've built databases in forever. Industry says like, no, it's actually not the right way. And then we were able to kind of come in and at least have a voice in the dialogue and say, well, some of it's right, some of it's wrong, but this is like what happens when the rubber meets the road with the theory. There, uh, there were a lot of systems coming out around that time, and I remember that you seemed to always take the high road and be friendly with all of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been a wild road for NoSQL. I mean, I think like Basho basically folded, uh, Cassandra and Datastack still kicking, but like Rethink is gone, Foundation like like got bought and then is out again. It's kind of fun. Like I still think there's a room for a better transaction engine. Maybe the folks at like Fauna or uh, Cockroach, Cockroach do. Yeah, yeah. But but the reality is like. You know, the need for like a, like, I don't think anyone's really cracked at scale, the need for like a scale out, easily, you know, elastically chartable operational data serving system. And the sad thing is like, you know, a good, like a lot of cloud vendors just building themselves now, but it's not open source. So I almost feel like that like golden era of no sequels almost in the rear view mirror, but I'm hoping, I still hope for like, you know, Fauna or Cockroach or one of these guys, or maybe Foundation DB to like, you know, come out swinging and finally build the right thing ever as we're wanting. And honestly, as much as we talk about those NoSQL databases, a lot of people still use MySQL and Postgres. Oh, yeah, it blew my mind. Like, I remember going up to uh, Microsoft Research to talk about this stuff and, like, talking to some of the guys on the Microsoft SQL Server team. And, like, 
at least at the time, a few years back, like the only like distributed version of Microsoft SQL Server you would get was their parallel data warehouse. Like most customers still run on like a single node with a replication, you know, a, a secondary somewhere for high availability. So like the problems of it's kind of funny actually. I mean, coming full circle, like coming off of this research, one of my takeaways was like the systems we had been building were based and even you know better systems hackers. Like they were getting so fast, it was unclear like how much faster you actually have to go. And today you can fit just crazy workloads on a single node. Uh, and the only hard part is just geo-replication. So how the hell did you end up in operational analytics from all of this distributed yeah, system? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. And, and, like and, literally... uh, and with that said, define what operational analytics is. Got it, got it. Okay, cool. So two separate. Um, I'll start with my path and I'll, I'll come with my definition. So like we, I graduated in 2015, had this job at Stanford lined up to, to start my own research group. And I was kind of flabbergasted that, you know, on literally like a single beefy instance on the, on the, you know, on a public cloud, you can serve as a meaningful fraction of the world's transactional requirements with like very little hardware. So at the time when I graduated, it was like one transaction per person on the planet every minute with half a million dollars of EC2 instances. And it was like, damn, you know, I can, you can spend the next eight years making transaction engines faster and faster. But if data volumes keep going up and up and up, it's not like you and I are like buying more shit on Amazon or we're like, you know, buying more coffees or, 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 or like there's actually like read write operations occurring. It's all going to be, you know, ingest, right? Things that, that are that observations that are occurring and we're logging it all. So I started asking this question, like, let's fast forward a couple of years because in, in research, you got to kind of try to live in the future. So it's like, imagine like data storage is basically free. And, you know, a bunch of my friends and, and, and future colleagues, you know, they built the Spark system, work a lot with Batay. Like, let's assume that distributed data flow works really well. Like, what next? And fast forwarding today, like in the setting stage for operational analytics, like what's been really interesting to see is people have really bought in the idea that data has value. And as opposed to like 2013 era big data, where you put everything in HDFS and call it a data lake, there's this massive amount of ETL tooling and customer data platforms just shovel more and more data into really good warehouses like Snowflake and Redshift and BigQuery. So for me, operational analytics is I'm a line of business operator. I have access to more data than was like available on the internet when Google launched within my private enterprise. And I'm defining metrics like I can track churn and activation and engagement and revenue and operational efficiency super easily in like BI tools. And operational analytics is how do I let that line of business operator who's effectively becoming an analyst, right? The operational analytics is I run a business, but my job now, because I got access to so much data, is essentially act like a data analyst and I got to figure out what to do. And that's what kind of brought me here is that this data volumes keep going up and up and up. And there's more and more people who've got access to it. So like solve for the tool that connects the data that's available to the business person trying to figure out, you know, do I launch a new campaign? Do I change my marketing strategy? What should I do every day? There's a slight detour here. Maybe I'm missing something, but uh, you went to MIT for a year, right? Between uh, Stanford and grad school. And then you built a system called Macrobase. Because I remember when you got back to Stanford, that was what you showed me. So what happened to Macrobase? Yeah, totally. So Macrobase was my uh, attempt and ultimately became our research group's attempt to answer this question of what do you do with like free data, like mass amount of data and, um, and a lot of compute? And the initial challenge was similar to this operational analytics thing. You have these KPIs that are defined on top of these structured data uh, sets, like in a, in a big table. More data is arriving all the time. How do you know where to look, right? So we did a bunch of research into scalable algorithms for like anomaly detection, outlier detection, you know, unsupervised classification to find outliers. And also into like when I find something that's going wrong, like, you know, the P99 latency spiking on a given node. Like, what is it about those data points that makes them different than the rest? 
And so this whole concept of like data explanation and a bunch of papers people written around how do you like uh, explain what makes certain cohorts different than the others and what are the right measures. And then a lot of the work was how do you put this together in a system then scale it up? And, you know, the short answer here is happy to go deeper on any part of this. We found that like anomaly detection is really, really hard. Like it's just in, in the limits, like saying you're doing statistical classification. Like what does that mean? It depends on exactly what type of problem you're solving. But in many cases with these like very large tabular data sets, like you find in a cloud warehouse, people already have cleaned up the data and have really wide tables. They're already tracking metrics defined on top of these things. And the name of the game is basically, tell me why this metric is moving. And so we did a bunch of production deployments and go into with like big internet companies based on our open source work. And then ultimately to make this thing more production grade and accessible, you know, recently went on leave to, to start this company around it. So what is the distinction then, Peter, between the type of user that uh, for Macrobase as to the type of user for CSU? Um, yeah, they're, they're almost the same. So like the typical user that we see is essentially faced with mass amount of structured data. Okay. So think about the fact that, you know, depending on who you ask and which analyst you talk to, you see average enterprise doubling data volume every two years. Most enterprises we work with are not doubling user count. Like every two, like you would love to, but that's not going to be sustainable long-term. Like they're not selling twice as many sort of coffees, t-shirts or shoes or tacos, right? It's all coming from more and more data being integrated into these big systems. So you get like wider and wider rows. I don't just know like customer A purchased item B. The so customer A purchased item B. They also looked at item C, D, and E. Here's how long they make, took to make the decision. Here's their ISP. Here's the make, model, feature, flag, campaigns that we're exposed to. You get like super, super wide data. And typical user for both of these systems is someone who says, well, great. Like here's a behavior of interest I want to drive. Like I want to activate more people to try out the new feature. Or like uh, one of the some of the work we did on campus with a large content provider was like, um, how do I encourage more successful plays or not? Where uh, I guess in this scenario that you're describing, the person asking this question is not an analyst, but uh, in the past would have to go to an analyst team for help. So what you're what you're trying to do is eliminate kind of that uh, need for going to the analysts. Yeah, yeah, and in a nutshell, like you just can't scale humans. Like the the, the rate at which the data Everyone talks about data volumes going up, which is like almost like trite at this point. But it's not just like more and more rows. It's like you've got more and more columns. And so if I want to do like what you conventionally call like an IT scenario, root cause analysis, like, but I do it for the business, like engagement's dropping and why. It would literally take me like hours or days for a team of skilled analysts to go and basically slice and dice all those different variables and identify what makes the highly engaged users different this week than last week or the low engaged users. Where are users missing this week compared to last week? There's so many different ways to slice this and every dimension adds like combinatorially more search space to go after. And so, you know, the, the types of pain points that we saw increasing in the lab were like, I don't have enough, I, I can't get answers fast enough. So there's speed. This question, like when I do get an answer, have I got the right answer? Because I can only afford to go and test a limited number of these hypotheses and drill into a limited number of variables. And then no matter what, it's so hard to continuously watch. Like whenever I run an analysis, as soon as new data arrives, I got to rerun the analysis. So like almost no one was proactively looking at these metrics, but instead was waiting for things to go bad and then dive into the data. So a couple of questions. The first is, uh, so in the scenario you described, right? So I have, I suddenly determine I want to understand churn or whatever, right? So I don't have to go to an analyst. I use CSU and then I can kind of unearth what's driving churn. But then uh, in that scenario, I can just set up uh, whatever it is that I did. Can I just set that up? And that becomes like a, a report that I get, number one. Uh, and number two, uh, in the traditional scenario where I go to the analyst, I guess, presumably, Peter, uh, an analyst would be able to say, huh, 
yeah, this looks like the reason why we have churn. But after I looked at the data more carefully, there was some data quality issues or there were some outliers or statistical anomaly. You know what I mean? So the, yeah. the, the analyst has the ability to interrogate the data and understand the something something more. So are you guys going to automate kind of that? Uh... Yeah. So in other words, how do you make sure that the line of business person doesn't jump to conclusions? Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, both really interesting questions. So the first one is like, you know, what's this, what's this interaction model look like? And, you know, some things we found, like, we wrote a paper in BLDB this year with some friends from um, and collaborators from like Google Ads team, uh, Microsoft, uh, kind of their product analytics stack, they tracking like Skype, and also looking at, you know, some work at Facebook, like mobile engagement, quality of service, and the kind of common theme that we noticed back on campus, which has been true expanding out to like Fortune 500, is that there's a fundamental inequality between the rate at which metrics change and the rate at which the data changes. So like, on a given team, you might define the KPIs you're tracking once a year, maybe once a quarter. If you're changing like what you're measuring in terms of engagement or retention or activation or churn, like if you're not sure what you're measuring and that's changing more than once a quarter, like you've got bigger problems with your business. But the data is always changing, right? The data is always arriving. It's like daily or hourly or by the minute, especially like stream processing engines and like Kafka dumping more data into these things, uh, into these warehouses. So, so the fundamental inequality here is in a lot of operational analytics scenarios, there's some like proactive or sorry, right, reactive, something happened, let me go dig in. But the bigger opportunity is teams in their you know, weekly business review check the same metrics every week. And so if you could architect a, a system to understand what metrics a team cares about and then continuously track what's affecting those metrics, then you can change this from a reactive model. Oh, I noticed in a dashboard something dipped. I'm going to go to figure out why and say, well, look, we've seen the last 10 times this thing dipped. Uh, we've seen what you've clicked on. We actually start to proactively notify you the next time it starts to dip. And so it's really the shift enabled by the fact that metrics are relatively, um, their definitions are relatively static. The data is always changing that enables you to move from a conventionally reactive model to a much more proactive model. And that's only enabled by data arriving, like much more data arriving way more often. And also the fact that there's a lot more columns in the data where, you know, the probability that any column is actionable, like, oh, a feature flag is misbehaving. Let me go turn that off. Or like a demographics responding poorly to new creative. Let's go retarget that. Like people are getting around to the, in an operational, like, like, like line of business, not high tech companies. They're getting around the idea that like we should be changing what we're doing week by week. And, and so in the case of Sisu, we basically deliver someone a feed of here's what's new and here's what's going on in your business. But uh, what about the whole, uh, the analyst has some skills around data interrogation, oh, data, yeah, yeah, data totally. quality. And yeah. So, so, you know, I don't think there's any substitute, like I, I, anyone, anyone who says like, oh, I got a data scientist in a box or an analyst in a box, like really cool research projects around this stuff, uh, really interesting things people are trying to build. I don't know how to do that in full generality, right? And I think what you really have to think about is what's the cost-benefit trade-off with with having an analyst do something versus having a line of business owner doing it. And so for an analyst, an analyst can understand what are errors in the data. They can understand, you know, what is truly causal or they have hypothesis what are truly causal versus what's just correlation. Um, they can hypothesis, they can just, you know, content and copy changes. And so they, they're like people are smart. Um, I think the opportunity in operational analytics is not to replace that analyst, but to instead replace the amount of time that would otherwise go into, you know, slicing and dicing, maybe not finding anything and really scaling up to like data sets that would just be, you know, cost prohibitive to go and investigate. And so specifically around data quality, like we have production, <laughs> we have some production users who are actually using CSU to understand where their data quality is having issues because, um, you know, say, oh, there's a lot of nulls here. You know, this metric tends to spike. Okay, great. There's probably a problem with the data feed. Let's go fix it. But at the end of the day, like, are you guys using Holoclean? 
Uh, I think Holoclean is awesome. Those guys are super smart. Ehab and, um, and, and Chris. are awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Chris, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, really good track record. We're not using that because we're not repairing it. Right. But ultimately, like, so for us, we will surface these things. If there's like a bunch of outliers. Oh, I see. So, so, so let's say I'm a line of business person uh, and there's data quality issue. How, so how does that manifest so, itself in the interface? Yeah, I'd be like, okay, so, you know, sales are like 500,000 times higher than usual, <laughs> you know, among a uh, cohort that is on this version of the application and, um, you know, in Ontario. And you're like, you'll look at that and you're like, that looks like, you know, that doesn't look right. And, you know, you're right. Some, you know, non-discerning business user could run off a cliff and say, well, I better roll out this version of the application to everyone. But realistically, like people are smart, right? If you're in this operational analytics mindset, you're going to have these, you know, you don't just know. There's a difference between like data driven and data informed, which a lot of product people talk about. Like if you're data driven, you're like, screw it. No humans in the loop. We're going to go run off the cliff. And, and I think actually in the kind of growth hacking community, I hate that term, but like in this kind of community, people almost dialed back from the data driven thing and more been like, how does it inform my decision? So hopefully someone's not going to run off the cliff like a lemming because they see a fact about, you know, really high number of sales, which is clearly do an error in the data. And what they instead do is they go to their data engineering team and say, hey, that doesn't look right. Can you check it for me? Well, and what, reality- what, if, what if it's not so off the charts? Yeah. I mean, I think like, so, you know, aside from data anomalies, like, false discoveries are, are an issue as well. Like, I don't think there's a substitute. Or, for... or I, I thought that you guys say what you're saying is that you, you're already uh, interrogating the data to see if there's data quality issues, right? And so therefore, when I push the button to do the analysis, will it just tell me, hey, here's the result. But by the way, we found some data quality issues. Is that how it works? I, honestly, from a, so from a product perspective, right, I think ETL and like data quality assessment is a whole, like doing that well is like a Turing complete problem. Oh, so you, one, so, so do you guys assume, you, you assume that the, so CISU just sits on top of some data warehouse and you assume that someone else takes care of the data warehouse, right? Absolutely. And we'll do like data quality checks to make sure that we're not feeding garbage data. There's not a lot of nulls, but it's very often the case we can show like there's some statistical, you know, outlier here. We're seeing like a lot of nulls or some really higher than expected, you know, revenue number. It turns out it is a data quality issue. And then just, you know, like most of our users have been able to figure out, actually, this is not really something I want to act on. It's something that I want to um, like go back to the team and, 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 and check. Is this actually what's going on? It's like um, just like like the, the analog is like in marketing, right? You know, when users use us, we're not going to write the copy for them and launch the creative on Facebook. Right. But we'll give them kind of the hints for where to start to look. and and, and so. There's often many people involved in any individual, say, product decision or marketing campaign or operation change in us, like store level operations, for example. And so they're already used to interrogating the data. Like, like the people, these operational analysts, they're not, they're often, especially in large organizations, not the ones calling the shots uniquely on their own. They're part of a larger narrative and discussion that's going on. And so, you know, it's, it's almost always the case they have to defend their particular recommendations. We help them find, you know, the top five things they should go dig deeper into, but it's no substitute for like, you know, doing the hard work of thinking about, you know, does this data match up with our strategy? Um, do we want to, um, you know, listen to what the data is telling us this time or do we want to go based on our intuition, right? And um, this is really just, you know, replacing otherwise a process where they probably don't have enough time for it. They probably don't have analysts to help them out for every decision. And as a result, the data is probably not being looked at. So a few years ago, I think that if a product like CISO came out, maybe like four or five years ago, right? So uh, maybe business people weren't ready because basically uh, what you're talking about is a a product that 
would also require some adjustment on part of the line of business people, meaning, uh, hey, you know what? Before you just went with your instinct. Now you have to use data. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, totally. So, so there's a changing mindset and culture too in terms of yeah. the business people. Absolutely. I think I think people are scared, to be completely honest, right? You look at like, think about tech companies, right? Like a lot of these hot tech companies, Airbnb, Uber, Lyft, these are not like, they're not competing with like Amazon, well, Amazon Web Services, right? Or even Amazon as an example, right? These are like technology enabled companies eating conventional verticals. And so if you're inside one of these conventional verticals, everything from like retail to restaurants to direct consumer goods, hotels, you're like, yeah. yeah, hotels, like you are scared. And I think these like leadership within these things, if they're worth their salt, have actually invested significant, like it's shocking to me how many, say, large fast food chains have their data in like Redshift, <laughs> right? Like all the transaction level detail already integrated sitting in this thing because they've realized they have to do this to be competitive. And I think the big question then is if you can't hire a incredibly large team of data scientists, or it's not cost effective, or you're not gonna put one data science per regional manager, what do you do instead? And the kind of funny thing about this narrative where it's like, oh, you know, Fortune 500 so far behind is even within the, these big tech companies, right? Like within the Facebooks, Ubers, Airbnbs, Netflixes, like it's not like everyone uniformly gets data science love. You'll have like the recommendations team getting like tons of PhDs, but like how many does customer success get? So it's already kind of uneven, but the thing that's changed is that because of this almost fear of being left behind, there's a lot more data in a lot better shape than has ever been possible. Like five years ago, never would have started a company here, would have stayed on campus and, and, and written more papers. And what you described, right? So I, I, I'm a line of business person. I'm, I want to track a particular metric. And then I use CISU. CISU basically does some sort of feature engineering to figure out uh, what are the key drivers how different is that from this uh, scenario? Years ago, I uh, in one of these uh, AMP lab retreats, there was a poster session, and I asked one of the students who was uh, had a poster about visualization. I said, uh, "What well, you know? What I want is for you to draw the charts that I should be looking at." <laughs> you know what I mean? Because because uh, as you paint uh, the scenario, Peter, uh, I could be in a situation where there's just too many things to to track and draw. So at some point, would uh, do you can you envision a tool like that where uh, you know here's a mountain of data here's here's kind of the visualizations that are interesting and you should be paying attention to yeah yeah so i think in a nutshell absolutely like i just put it this way right today we take it for granted that when i want to find something on the internet i can enter like a very high level search query right like you know ben lorica podcast and if there is a ben lorica podcast give me my first page of results maybe my second or third page if i can't find something on google today like it doesn't exist for, 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 for almost all practical purposes. But like rewinding 20 years ago, right back to the early days of PageRank, right, the way that we actually navigated the internet was completely different, right? Uh, you had a bunch of people trying to do keyword search, didn't work super well. And you had Yahoo basically paying people uh, to be internet uh, librarians. Taxonomy, right? So there's someone uh, handcrafted the taxonomy. Exactly. And the taxonomy works awesome. Like it's great if you have like a very small internet or a small number of topics, right? It's like I can learn about poodles, but can I learn about like poodle and Yorkie mixes, right? So like, and there's no internet, there's no, if there's no page about poodle Yorkie mixes, then that taxonomy is fine. So I think like when the internet got big enough, enough people were looking at the, at the internet and internet and public internet data, you could suddenly do interesting things with like page rank. And then obviously like 20 years after page rank, like Google still has tons of people working on uh, making people click on ads and clicking on their results that go beyond page rank. Otherwise, if it's just page rank, you know, Bing would be doing a lot better and DuckDuckGo and so on. But, the, but my, my kind of point of this analogy 
is like ranking and relevance on the internet was not always guaranteed to be good. In fact, it kind of sucked for a long time. And even now, like what is relevant on the internet is still incredibly subjective. I think that we're just getting at the point where inside of a conventional organization, there's enough data to do interesting things here, where it's not just finding like ridiculous correlations between, you know, number of shoes sold and, you know, the temperature in the office. But there's actually enough observational data being gathered by ingests and ETL and customer data processes and being structured in useful formats where suddenly there's like enough attributes to start to do really interesting things about with, with data. And the other analogy I, I draw kind of historically is, you know, we've done data driven or data informed decision making since the beginning of modern accounting, right? Like everyone runs their business on profit and loss. This is what Wall Street trades on. But as you have more and more data about the day to day and every interaction with the customer and so on, you suddenly have more and more information on what you can make decisions that impact leading indicators like customer happiness and engagement and onboarding time and so on. So I think what we're starting to witness in outside of just public data sets, but internal to any large, increasingly mature organization is this critical inflection point where there's enough data and enough people looking at this data that you can actually start to do interesting things like you talk about, which is like visualization recommendation. Or, you know, you can start to learn from organizational structure. I shared a graph with Grant last week that tells me something about what I care about, what Grant cares about, and if Grant forwards that as well. Mary looks at it for five seconds and drills down. That's all like passive information you can harvest, which is exactly how consumer internet works, right? Like enterprise is not that different. It's just that the types of data you're indexing and query are tabular as opposed to HTML. I thought that, uh, so yeah, so, so this last point you made about uh, using metadata and usage patterns, I think uh, people are starting to uh, leverage some of that, although I haven't seen any good product or implementations. I, and then when you started, I thought, oh no, he's going to talk about natural language uh, <laughs> queries, which always work great in demos, but man, yeah. they never work in practice, right? So. Yeah, yeah. The natural language stuff is interesting. I think it's um, like, don't get me wrong, I love to speak at my BI tool. I still use BI tools and they're great, but that's not the high pole. It's like, out of the, as you pointed out, it's the constellation of things I could possibly go and drill into. What are the things I want to look at now? What does relevance mean for me with respect to the, the metrics I care about? What's going on in my business right now? And what I've done over the last, you know, two years of sitting inside of my BI tool. That's what, that's like, that's the type of question where, you know, that's like, just like in, in so much of consumer internet, like our personalization is done according to passive supervision, even in Spotify and like Pandora, right? Like I think they removed the thumbs down or, or, or at least they've de-emphasized thumbs down, thumbs up. Cause the reality is if you fast forward a track, you didn't like it. Similarly, if I don't click in on a graph or I don't share it. That tells me something about like what I care about. If I show five results on a screen, I click on the fourth. That tells me about the importance of these. It's, it's kind of obvious from like a user interface perspective. But again, like this whole space of enterprise analytics, because it's been so manually driven for so long, completely agree with you. I haven't seen people starting to, to, to take advantage of that. And I think that's a huge opportunity. All right. So now we have a few uh, uh, lightning topics here. The first one is uh, machine learning benchmarks, because you've been involved with a couple of them, the ones that are, have actually attracted the, a lot of attention and industry participation. The first one is Don Bench. The second one is MLPerf. So at a high level for the lay audience, uh, what are these benchmarks and what's the, uh, what's happening now in terms of awesome. uh, these benchmarks? Yeah, yeah, these are really fun projects. This was, this, these were joint work, Don Bench coming out of our Stanford Don Lab, which is a 
multi PI initiative like Matei Zaharia, Chris Ray, Kunle Olakoten, and a bunch of students. And then ML Perf turned this giant, um, it's like a consortium, like 70 different folks like Google and Microsoft. Yeah, you, got, you guys even went to our AI conference. Patterson, I know, Patterson I know. Uh, forced all of you to go. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, thanks for the invite for that. Yeah. So, so in a nutshell, right, um, a lot of ML folks compete on accuracy. Like how, who gets the highest score on, on ImageNet or who gets the highest score on Squad or all these different, you know, classic tasks with benchmarks associated with them. But in practice, a lot of these models are pretty slow to execute and very expensive to train to the point where you hear increasing the news like only Google can do AI research because it takes so much computing. Oh, yeah, problem. yeah. You can train your own natural language model for 500,000. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. It's like you can't, you can't. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so, so the question is like the elephant in the room is like, how much hardware does it actually take in order to get good quality, uh, both for at training time and then in terms of making new predictions at inference time? And we were sitting around the lab as part of this usable ML uh, project we had started saying, oh, oh so wait a minute. So, so to be clear to the audience, uh, the question you folks were answering was not what's the most accurate model, but more about computation and systems, right? Absolutely. And it like, if you look at the press releases for these new chips, which are really cool, they'll be like, we can process, you know, X thousand images per second, or even worse, I have like, you know, 10 teraflops of processing power. And you're like, that's fine. But like, what does that mean in terms of cost to train ImageNet to reasonably high accuracy, right? Is that, does that mean I'm two times better? Is the price so high that I'm actually worse off than with the previous generation? Like no one was answering this question. And so we figured kind of a Switzerland, you know, we had some industrial sponsorship. So I want to disclose that. But like basically, you know, as, as, as close to Switzerland as you can get uh, being at Stanford, we said, look, let's just set up a benchmark competition where the goal is not to get the highest accuracy. We're going to take like the accuracy target you would expect from like a state of the art model and we'll lower it by 0.1% or epsilon. And then we'll say, how fast can you get to that accuracy level? Right. And how much does it cost on a public cloud? And it turned out... Like, but then it's a benchmark, so it has to be reproducible, right? Absolutely, yeah. So so we basically set this thing up as a public benchmark. We had a competition. A bunch of folks entered. It was pretty fun. Got pretty fast and furious at the end. And basically, we encourage all submissions to require uh, source code. Um, and a, a large fraction of them, of them actually did. You have to actually upload your training logs at the minimum. And basically, people just went wild. Like, how fast can we train to 93% accuracy on ImageNet? And we started off with something crazy. Like, our, like we, we seeded the competition with some stuff to beat. You know, everyone wants to have, like, no one wants to be the first one, but everyone wants to crush something. So we seeded it with some, like, code that we had written in the lab. And, you know, we got it down to like from like, I think our initial entries were something like two hours for ImageNet uh, to get the 93% accuracy. And now, like as of, you know, May, it was like two minutes, 43 seconds. And that's kind of un using unlimited amount of hardware. But then the cloud vendors also got in and said, you know, how do we get, you know, ImageNet down from, I think it was a couple hundred bucks, maybe even a thousand dollars. Now, like on uh, Google Cloud TPU, you can do this in 12 $12.60. And so there are a lot of benchmarking efforts trying to measure the trade-off between accuracy and, and, and cost and accuracy and speed. And it was like this, you get like this like Pareto curve. And we kind of made the bet. It's like the Pareto curve is hard to wrap your head around. What I really want to know is if I want to get pretty good accuracy, how cheap or how fast can I get there? And that's what we built with Dawn Bench. So, and, that, and, and then, yeah, and then uh, at some point, uh, Dave Patterson came in and uh, and then you guys expanded it to beyond Stanford, right? To ML, yeah, yeah. MLPerf. But is MLPerf basically very similar to Dawn Bench in spirit? Yeah, in spirit, it's basically the same. I think the um, there's, for a variety of reasons that are kind of interesting we have a paper coming out mostly concerned on vendors and reproducibility we, there's no cost component in mlper but there's a time component for both training and inference and the real opportunity was you know 
this kind of the way we like to do research at Stanford. Like same thing honestly with macro-based going out into CSU, like we used to see with Spark going out into Databricks. Like there's a certain point where you can only do so much with, you know, academic funding. And so what Dave Patterson, who's this awesome guy from Berkeley, Turing Award winner, like really great team builder realized was, you know, Dawn Bench, we did two different applications. We did uh, image classification. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. You guys expanded to speech and a bunch of things, right? Yeah, yeah. And it was awesome because, you know, especially with Dave and his ability to build out this awesome, you know, coll- consortium of people, we got like the people who did uh, some of the cutting edge speech recognition models from Baidu and got a bunch of the hardware vendors on board as well and kind of have built it out. So it's an independent consortium where you have kind of the who's who of of, of deep learning um, uh, companies and chip manufacturers and any kind of big tech company, but all collaborating to set up fair and reproducible standards for performance and then really kind of adjudicate on you know, Don Bench was cool. People were in a bunch of, like, we were in a bunch of talks that I think Jeff Dean gave and stuff. Like, it had a lot of press, but this is really meant to be a true uh, TPCC or spec like governing board for machine learning benchmarks. Where again, it's so, so then the idea then is uh, so, for example, uh, a few weeks ago, Cerebrus announced their wafer scale chip. So then uh, at some point, then uh, they, in order for them to, uh, be taken seriously they have to go through ml first that- one would hope i mean there's i mean i don't know how many hundreds of millions or billions have been poured into these chip companies and i think they're probably doing some really interesting stuff but yeah i mean until you actually go out and say like you can say how many transistors are on your chip but the question is how's that translating to actual throughput and performance and you know, granted, like MLPerf is a bunch of industry partners and there's some there's some universities like Stanford and one of our students, Cody Coleman, is like, you know, really been instrumental in keeping academia involved and BJ Reddy at Harvard. But like, so it's biased, like there's an inherent bias, but the best bet that, you know, this group of people has come up to say, here's an unbiased way to measure performance. And I personally, like just intellectually, am very curious for all these chip vendors that are pouring money, money, money into these into these new chips and, and with their press releases, like what does it actually mean in terms of ImageNet performance? How much faster is this thing actually uh, in practice? And I think my personal goal is by providing kind of fair or as close to fair as one can get in this space set of yardsticks, you can actually say, you know, look, transistor count's great, but put your money where your mouth is. Let's see what you do on this benchmark. So Cerebrus, from what I understand, from what they've told me, which I cannot obviously mention, the performance on training is insane. But I guess, uh, like you, they should probably go through this process just to, for validation. Yeah, and I think part of the challenge, too, is like the hardware footprint and the compute profile for like ImageNet, which is just a ton of convolutions, basically, versus, say, natural language. like. One hardware chip that crushes it on images may not be as good on uh, on different types of data. And so, I, one reservation I've heard people, you know, in closed doors raise is: look, we can't enter into every MLPerf category. And in Dawn Bench, and I believe MLPerf, you could enter into just a handful of them. But I imagine it would raise questions if I was a vendor and I got a great score on one benchmark, but then I like don't have scores for the other. So my prediction, if I were to wager, is that you'll see like one of these tech companies, whether it's like Cerebrus or or um, or we should we should call out our mutual friends at Samba Nova. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was about to say that, but like I don't know anything about what they're doing. So, I don't know what um, they're doing either. <laughs> But I would love to see him go out. Chris and Kunle should enter this thing. I mean, they're involved. They were involved in the both from the Samba Nova side and the Stanford side, clearly. So, but I, I think you know it would be awesome, and I would consider it like a major success even beyond where we've already gotten in terms of industrial participation if we had these chip companies truly, you know, towing up and 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 showing up. I mean, right now you have like especially in ML Perf, you got like Intel and Google, and like Google's TPUs are awesome, but like you know what is everyone else doing, right, with these specialized hardware platforms? And by the way, there's another constraint that people are starting to throw in, particularly, I think, uh, 
Oren Ocione and the Allen AI people around green computing, green AI. Yeah. Power consumption. So is that covered by MLPerf? Um, in the closed, so I think the challenge with this one in MLPerf was like, how do you measure it? Right. So there's a lot of things around. So I think you basically set up these rules in a way where you want to give people the benefit of the doubt, but you also want to make sure there's not ways to essentially game the system. And so power gets really hard. You're like, if you're in a rack, right? Do you include the top of rack switch? Do you include the, just the chip only? Do you include the motherboard, the memory subsystem? So it's really hard to measure power. I will say though, I think when you get to like inference, right? So making predictions and making predictions right. on the edge and on phones and so on, that power stuff gets even more important. And there's a bunch of academics doing work in this space. Like people are just like the hardware community is going crazy. It's like amazing, right? It's kind of CPUs got kind of boring for a while. Suddenly they have like the world's, you know, like a bunch of new workloads to go optimized. So people are studying this in the academic literature, not in Don Venture. I don't think ML Perf right now. My hope is that we can kind of take the learnings from these studies that people are doing in the computer uh, so, architecture so, and so, so them these, in. These are like the Song Hans, uh, the squeeze nets of the world. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's so there's like Song Han and these guys doing model compression. That stuff is just insanely cool. In fact, uh, we read Song Han's paper, and that was like what convinced me we should do more more work on on. Yeah, yeah. And then the, there was a Berkeley people, your contemporaries around Squeeznet, right? Yeah, yeah. And they had a company, I think, as well. Yeah. Um, so, so people have recognized that fast inference matters. Um, and it's kind of funny, like, you know, when you actually do inference in the real world, it's quite different than when you're just doing it in like, on these competitions, right? So like one of the things, um, one of our students, Matei and I have a student, Daniel Kang, his work is like, if you just want to find buses at an intersection, and you run like an off the shelf object detector, you're like 100x slower than you could be if you just trained a model to only find buses at the intersection. So there's, there's all sorts of ways to shave off weights and make the models run way faster if you exploit properties of both the network and also the implementation context. And I think that's like just going crazy in terms of research. But there's also a bunch of folks experimenting with like, like there's some academics who like really like doing things the right way and are really into measurement. And there's even a conference called Sigmetrics, which is basically just the measurement conference. And so these guys are basically, I think, hashing out there's a bunch of proposals for how to accurately measure power as opposed to saying, oh, I got this many weights in my neural network. Because again, that doesn't necessarily correspond to lower power when you run them in production. And so my hope would be that once we figure out the right way to do this and hash it out in, in the academic literature, then we can just backport it to the open benchmarks. And by the way, I think from a startup perspective, there might be a bigger startup around inference than training, right? Yeah. I mean, the funny thing is, like, if you look at the state of the art for a lot of these, say, language models, they're so expensive to train. The corpuses are so big that, you know, you almost always, when you actually have to apply ML, just take one of these pre-trained models and fine-tune it on whatever application you're using, right? Because, you know, part of speech doesn't change that much and so on. So so I think that, actually that from a startup perspective, I think the most exciting things in the pure ML space have to do with how do you put the models to work as opposed to how do I train models faster? You can certainly sell a lot of chips to like Facebook and Google if you, well, maybe not Google because they got the TPU, but, you, you know, you could certainly sell to someone faster training chips. But this inference problem, especially on like mobile devices and edge devices, super interesting. So I have a couple of uh, other quick questions. First, on data management, I'm starting to see, again, the comeback of these uh, specialized systems of one, time series databases, right? So time scale and influx, and then also graph databases. So what are your thoughts? Do, do I need a specialized database? Do I need that extra level of complexity in my infrastructure? Uh, great question. I think that Mike Friedman the, will be listening to this. Uh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I also have some <laughs> friends at, at Imply, right? So Imply yeah. is also doing stuff with Druid. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. think that for certain infrastructure-heavy scenarios, like if you're truly in IoT or you're doing a ton of ops, like machine-generated data, there's like a massive need for more scalable infrastructure just because like if you take Postgres and you shard it and start spraying, you know, a bunch of log data over Postgres, thing will fall over and like you're, you know, 
admins are going to hate you and it's just not a good idea. So I totally think like taking Postgres and rebuilding it like they did at time, time scale, super smart idea, solves an important problem. Honestly, in this space with respect to high volume data, I think you're going to see things bifurcate into two scenarios. Like on the one hand, you're going to have this massive amount of machine data. Like we actually started doing stuff with IoT way back when we started the macro-based project and like, you know, have these like jet engine manufacturers saying, oh, we generate like three trillion data points per flight or billion or whatever the number was, something massive. And you're like, what you really want to know is like, did the engine work and what was the fuel efficiency? And there's some class of people who care about like the kilohertz or like 100,000 100, kilohertz readings uh, about each and every rotational, you know, uh, turn of the engine and so on. But like, I think for a lot of scenarios, that raw data process is you know, something smaller, smaller, smaller. But anyway, machine side, it's like a completely different thing, right? Machines can pump out more data than like God, you know? The, the, the trade-off is like on the human side, if you're doing consumer data, it's actually getting smaller and smaller. Like there's 300 million people, you know, in America, 330 or something like this, right? You can fit that like a lot of data about every person in America on a single, you know, main memory server on AWS for really cheap. So it's kind of funny, like as compute's gotten more and more powerful, there's this bifurcation. And then you have humans is actually pretty small. And anything to do with uh, a machine gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So on the machine side, 100%. If I want to track like people's like location out of really, you know, relatively coarse granularity, standard database is probably fine. On the temporal data time series, like you said, IoT, 5G, yeah, maybe maybe there's going to be a need for these uh, specialized systems. Graphs, I, I'm not sure. On the other hand, some of the graph database startups seem to be doing okay and uh, they they claim that uh, they're also playing into the analytics space because they can answer questions that a relational database cannot answer. Well, a re- or at least a relational database can't answer without a lot of recursive SQL, which no one likes right. to write. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think for some data, there's graphs that are, like, graphs are great. It's like naturally structures graphs, social networks, that sort of stuff. And I do think I will definitely concede if you look at things like, like one of my colleagues at Stanford, Yuri Leskovic, who's at Pinterest as well, like they do unbelievable stuff with graphs. Like they can, you know, look at, they can do crazy predictions. Like they use stuff in terms of predicting, you know, like the, like the Pinterest product is like a bipartite graph. They're not using giraffe, are they? <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know if I can comment on what they're doing, nor do I have the up-to-date data, but yeah. it's, uh, like there's, like, if you're dealing with graphs, like your data is literally a graph between like, you have one giant table, which is users and one giant table, which is items. And you have a bunch of pins between them. Right, like, right. that's great. I personally, for non-graph related data, I see the appeal and maybe being able to do like recursive queries more efficiently. But if there's one thing I've learned in my short time in data management, still learning a lot is that, you know, tables are such a great abstraction. Like you can call them data frames if you're like, you know, hip, you know, data scientist, but like having a table that's flat and that you can do, you know, joins on top of and and basically process it in SQL or in pandas, like there's something really nice about that where even if you look at what people do with graphs, like what Yuri and his, his crew have been doing, like they just basically convert the each node, like node to vec, you just convert them into a giant vector and throw it into an ML model. Like tables and vectors are quite useful. And if I had to put a bet, I put more bet on Mike Friedman and the, and the time series guys than the graph guys. But what do I know? So one last question. So in the uh, academic conference world, right? So suddenly these uh, machine learning conferences, NIPS, ICLR, right? So ICML and all, all of these conferences sell out like within minutes of opening registration. They're, they're sold out. And then uh, industry people come, several thousand people. On the other hand, the database conferences and systems conferences, VLDB, Sigmod, a thousand people is considered big. But yep. now there's a, you guys uh, have started a, a new conference called SysML, which I think is still small. But do you think because that we're entering this implementation phase for ML, 
that some of these other conferences may also start getting bigger because, I mean, uh, there's only so many conferences around models that industry people can go to, right? So they they need to start going to uh, conferences to teach them how to build things. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's the O'Reilly conference, obviously, that's an industry conference, but on, are, are, are there going to be big academic conferences around building ML as opposed to building models? Yeah, yeah, totally. I think like the uncomfortable reality for a lot of applications of ML is that the hard part's not training the models, right? right, right like, right. like it's awesome to see like TensorFlow 2.0 and PyTorch getting better and better, but like the hard part is, you know, I take so much of like uh, modern, you take software, modern software engineering, like non-ML. You have like testing and continuous integration, and you have um, you know data management and governance and all of these like things you take for granted that there's good IT solutions to solving these problems and established practices. And you go to ML, and it's like Here's TensorFlow. You've got like TensorFlow serving, and there's a couple things that are kind of modules built on top of this that, that can solve some of these problems. But like the best practices, like how you even do continuous. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, look at the software engineering. You have code review style guides, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's hard. Like, so there's a paper last year, not to geek out too much, but the paper, like in continuous integration for ML, if you keep running the same continuous integration tests with the same data, you're going to get false positives because statistically, at some point, the model, even if it's totally crap, is going to get all the answers right. So how do you deal with that? Like it's like it's a completely different world. And so I think even just a task of porting modern software engineering over to a ML context, assertions, all these types of ideas, is like a whole like like 40 years of research. Like I almost think we kind of like mine the crap out of data management topics and how do we implement relational algebra really quickly? How do we scale it out? How do you distribute systems on top of it? Like now it's like a completely new world. And there's a very natural question that you pointed out, which like what's the home for all of this stuff? And I'd say there's been a bunch of different venues. There's been some system stuff. There's been some database stuff. There's been some stuff appearing like NURPS and, and ICML. And, oh, so and well, credit, how is the SysML thing going? Yeah, yeah. So so there were some folks who were like really awesome like pioneers like Joey Gonzalez um, at Berkeley who basically were organizing this workshop at NURPS. And it got so big and so popular that we ended up turning into an actual uh, conference. And so the SysML conference is really Rather than just having systems people doing their own thing without ML people looking over it, without just having ML people thinking they're doing systems, getting people on the same program committee to do peer review together, and then having like a gold stamp of ideally top tier you know, conference reviewing. And so far, it's been awesome. We did the first one at Stanford two years ago. We had a, the last one at Stanford uh, last year, uh, peer reviewed, archival. Um, like it's it's like the you know the real deal. It's not. So just is it is it is this also drawing industry people? Oh yeah, I mean I think SysML sold out in at least under under ten minutes. I think the first one sold out in like three minutes. We had to basically hold slots for authors. I know. I I knew. I I mean I was emailing Amit, who was one of the program chairs. <laughs> yeah, Help yeah, me yeah. out he, here. He said he couldn't do anything. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah, no. And I think it's great. Like the fun part about this too is you know folks like Amit and Demetrius and Matei. Like the people who are leading this charge are not necessarily just the old guard in their field. Like these guys are pre-tenure folks saying this thing should exist and we're going to hustle and put our time that could go into writing papers and training students towards building something that's better for the field. I give a massive credit for doing it. I think it's paying off because the reality is, as you said, like you could go and publish and stuff in databases. I and mean, we do this sometimes too, if it's really data related, but there's no natural home. And these guys have basically created it. It's been pretty cool. There's a white paper about 50 authors on it, Jeff Dean, and I think Jan LeCun signed it, and a bunch of these academics saying, this is the future of MLSys, it's on the archive, I think they're going to publish it somewhere, but but it really is like, I think the next generation of systems, it's not going to say you're going to like throw away your relational database, I think people often say, oh my god, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna reinvent the world, but really I feel it's like there's this massive new set of workloads to optimize for, 
to build out software engineering practices for. And these are not just like a turnkey operation. They're fundamental statistical issues, performance-related issues. And I think it's like one of the best times in the world to be a systems researcher right now. Awesome. So, Peter Bayless, thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks for your time. Had a lot of fun. Reminder that the Artificial Intelligence Conference in London is next week, October 14th to the 17th. This is our second AI conference in London. And also the uh, call for proposals for the AI conference in London 2020 will open next week as well. You can follow Peter Bayless on Twitter at P. Bayless. Thanks for joining us. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud or Spotify and never miss an episode.